This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson, uh, returning to the cave after a little while away. Making... Who are you? <laughs> I'm an interloper. I've just Paul oh, Anthony Nelson. Oh. I've never heard of that person. I should have said, calling back to a film from a few weeks ago. I'm an American. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Us. You know, Cerise might have been Ted, off that show. Yeah, I was off that people. show. That was just creepy from where I'm sitting. <laughs> it's creepy no, no matter how you slice it. Uh, um, Paul Anthony Nelson. Joining me in the cave tonight are Emma Westwood. Hello. Hello, Paul Anthony Nelson. We're looking very resplendent in a trench coat. Uh, it's good for radio, isn't it? It is. Mm-hmm. It's a good look for radio. Um, also looking good for radio is um, Cerise Howard. How are you? Oh, tonight? shucks. Oh, I, I'm blushing. <laughs> We've all got our lippy on tonight. We except do. you. Yeah. I, I we just, did a photo know. shoot for Plato's Cave, everyone, just so you know. Um, that's why we're talking about our clothing and lipstick, <laughs> in case you're thinking that's very bizarre. <laughs> you can't see my two inches thick of foundation over the uh, airwaves, but <laughs> I assure you it is frightening. <laughs> on tonight, um, just before we jump into the lineup on tonight's show, um, it's probably worth mentioning we're not really going to review this because, hell, they don't need the advertising, but it's Probably important to throw a little name check to Avengers Endgame. Um, Massive box office, hey. Well, literally the biggest thing that has ever thinged. Um, (laughs) So... Thung? Thung. Is the thung in this one? (laughs) No, the thung's in the fantastic floor. Different universe? (laughs) Um, So, basically, it is set every single... it's, It's... um, the highest opening weekend of all time before this weekend was Avengers Infinity War, its predecessor, was $257 million. People were wondering whether it might break $300 million. People weren't sure. $300 million. In three days, you that know. That was the popcorn money spent at the candy bar. <laughs> and, and the highest opening weekend previous to this was, um, Star, uh, you know, like was 257 Like, oh, maybe $300 yeah. It made $350 it's incredible. And uh, it's become the first film to make a billion dollars worldwide, which is insane. It made $100 million in 17 hours, $200 million in two days, $300 million in three days, and, yeah, it's just insane. I did see it last week. I don't believe you two did. Have no. negligible interest in it. Really? I would have thought it would be the top of your list. Uh, negligible. Trying to justify, you know, it's oh, part of it was made in Czechoslovakia. Maybe we could put it in one of our festivals. Czechoslovakia hasn't existed for 30 years. <laughs> oh, 26. Paul, you've been caught out. I have. I'm good with the geography. Hey, look, I only, I only follow the Sokovia Accords, okay? Um, one for the MCU nerds out there. Now, Avengers Endgame is... Look, I, I grew up a huge comic book fan, and for a long, long time, um, comic book movies were a little bit of a jam for me. Um, I would, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a weird time in the culture now, like, to go to a football stadium and see Thor's hammer and Hulk's arm, and, like, that would have been inconceivable as a kid. Like, you know, the, I'd go to the football with, you know, friends and whatever and comic books would be something i'd pretend to disavow and read you know under the bed or whatever uh and now it's just so part of the culture and a lot of it is because of the mcu and the film endgame really is i mean its fans love it it is basically a three hour 
grand final parade victory lap. Mm. It's it's everyone drives. It's like everyone driving around the the ground in their cars, waving to the audience. Um, everybody gets their big finale. Everybody gets their ending, and you Got know, the kids on their shoulders and stuff all, like that. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I think almost like and there's like even the weirdly like the end credits are autographed. Like there's there's like there's autographs on the end credit. Like it's very like it's very much a victory lap. And this is so not for Cerise and I. No, film. it's not it's not for all. it's for true believers. Um, to quote Stan Lee, you know, <laughs> Marvel's true believers. R.I.P. Spider Man. <laughs> I haven't done my Stan Lee impression here. Uh, but was he was he in this film or did well, he die before? There was a CG it? version of him, a young C, a de-aged CG version of him oh, in the movie. Okay. That's freaking me out. Um, and I think that's going to become the fate of a lot of the cast members of this film too. I think they might be brought back for future adventures in CGI versions, you know, down the track. Uh, but yeah, look, it's 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 a bit of a as Fantastic Mr. Fox would say, it's a bit of a cluster cuss. But it's not an altogether unpleasant one. It's you know like everybody's fun. Uh, there's 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 certain things with certain characters I didn't exactly vibe with, and you know I, I kind of got to the end and I, I've hit the fatigue point. I think I hit the fatigue point with these sort of films a couple of years ago. They just don't connect with me the way they used to. I love the first Iron Man. I love the second Avengers film. But I'm sort of getting to the point where it's like. Yeah, I I'm like sort of the done. first Iron Man as well. I'm with you there. Yeah, and and I think you know who could blame. I mean, for what Marvel Studios have achieved in 22 films over 11 years, they've virtually brought back the you know the old studio system. Mm. You know, signing You're their right. stable up. They're like an contract. MGM of super um, superhero films. Exactly, it's mm. it's MGM if Marvel Comics supplied all the scripts, and it's kind of you know, and like they've achieved amazing things. Who can begrudge them a victory lap, even if it is very you're very aware of the machine as you're watching it. You're very aware that everybody's ending contract. Is there something, though, would you say, um, Paul, for someone who doesn't exist in or, or live and breathe that universe? You Look, it's not a film. These last two Avengers films, they're episodes of a television show, essentially, okay. uh, of the world's biggest TV show. You can't just leap in and watch them as standalone films. You okay. have to watch all the others or most of the others mm-hmm. to kind of get what's, you know, to get anything out of it, really. Okay. So that's Avengers Endgame. Thanks for that. No I worries. won't be seeing it. Just, you know, <laughs> strike it off the list. Um, Cap- Captain Marvel and Shazam look fun, though. Um, <laughs> still a little bit of me there, true believing. Um, okay, on tonight's show, uh, we'll get crazy in the heat of tropical Queensland with Ben Hackworth Celeste. We'll get a case of Deja Vu with Julianne Moore and John Turturro in Gloria Bell, Sebastian Lelio's remake of his own 2013 film Gloria. But first, let's travel back to the future and get all turned around, back to front, not know who the hell we are in tonight's retro title, John Frankenheimer's 1966 sci-fi drama, Seconds. So this <laughs> is an, like, okay, so John Frankenheimer, very famous for directing um, a lot of the golden age of television, um, those great sort of, you know, uh, Playhouse 90 sort of, you know, uh, things like... You know, in the vein of the Iceman Cometh and Requiem for a Heavyweight and Twelve Angry Men for television, yeah. these sort of things. He's part of the Sydney Lumet generation. Absolutely, and, yeah. and he sort of, you know, was became famous for sort of directing these dramas and and thrillers and taught action films like The Train with Burt Lancaster. So doing this bizarre kind of body swap nineteen sixties 
black and white psychedelia um, ride that this film is is quite a, a change of pace. So we follow uh, Arthur Hamilton, played by John Randolph, who's a middle-aged man whose life has lost purpose. He's achieved success, but there's something, there's a, hole, a gaping hole in his life. He doesn't seem to really participate in his own life. He hasn't really, he's a, he's a successful banker, but he doesn't seem to really know what he wants. He's married, he's no love in his marriage. He seldom sees his only child. And basically, he at the start of the film, he gets calls from a, a friend of his, has a different voice, but seems to know everything about their friendship, and says, "Look, I'm I'm this guy from way back. I, I can tell you, I can prove unreservedly that it's me. You need to try this thing out. This this thing is incredible." Um, before, even before that, he's on a, He's getting on a train, and somebody presses a piece of paper into his hand with an address on it. Like, and so it's all this mysterious, and he's kind of. He's not really he's not really making the choice to do it. He just kind of ends up going to this place in the city, following this address, following down the rabbit hole, really, um, and basically goes into this uh, facility uh, called the company. And essentially, they offer through plastic surge, extensive plastic surgery and remodeling and training to put Arthur's consciousness into the body of a younger man. That younger man is Rock Hudson. <laughs> Don't we all want to be Rock Hudson, really, when it comes down to it? Maybe not <laughs> right? at the time. He wasn't living his true life. But he was he's, troubled. You know, yes, he, he was wa- troubled, but he's I mean, he's Rock Hudson. And he's not quite Macmillan and wife Rock Hudson yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's, still, he's still in good form. You know, he still looks a bit like Superman. Um, so, he has, so he wakes up after all this extensive plastic surgery, months of kind of, you know, physical training. He, he's now Antiochus Tony Wilson. He's... Um, He's been given a career. They've de- the company have decided through, you know, sort of uh, hypnosis and various other things with, with Arthur while he was under that he wants to be an artist. And so you want to be an artist. This is what you've always wanted to do. Well, now you have this beautiful house. You are an artist. You don't have to do anything. You are accepted. Hmm. And so he goes to this place and, of course, from almost minute one, he just... He, he can't he, he has trouble fitting in he doesn't feel right and he's got this he keeps uh, trying to mention the past soon finds that that's a little bit verboten and then things get really weird Cerise <laughs> things were already perfectly <laughs> uh, weird if anything things normalise a while with a, a general a bit of a sense of unease behind them uh, things are p- pretty weird from the get go the whole film um, as Stunningly shot by the the great uh, it's James Wong Howe, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah a, exactly. a brilliant cinematographer. There's an awful lot of. I, I think he must have actually perched cameras on actors' shoulders, or just somehow attached them to their back, so that that seems like they're just on their shoulders. There's a lot of wide-angle cinematography, almost as much as in The Cremator, which is a almost contemporaneous film, one of my mm. all-time favourite horror flicks. And another black and white film, we should mention that they're both black and white. In 1966, it wasn't necessarily taken that you were going to shoot a black and white film then, but no. it seems to make so much sense for this and The Cremator. Well, there's a few things here which suggest this is a, a film made on the cusp of a, a, a changing time, not least that it goes into a whole hippie freakout at one point, which also has shades of the pagan sing-along celebrations in The Wicker Man some years later very as well. Very Wicker Man. Yeah, very Wicker Man. 
um, a little peeing uh, to Bacchus. Um, and yes, lots of fun romping around naked in a, a barrel making wine or making love. I'm not sure. Yeah, just being drowned by wine. Yeah. But look, it looks kind of unpleasant. Just, yeah. Also, I, don't, I wouldn't want to drink that wine. No. It's very hygienic, uh, shall we say. But oh until God, it goes no. there and the film really lets loose, as uh, the protagonist is supposedly trying to learn to do, um, early on you could be set up for thinking this is a film which is still going to abide by earlier Hollywood uh, post-production code mores. So this loveless marriage, we see them in separate beds. Mm. And you might at first wonder, are they in separate beds? Because that was still actually the norm and demanded by the industry through self-regulation. Or is it, in fact, just a loveless marriage? And it's a bit unclear at first, especially coming at this from the perspective of someone in 2019. And I hadn't seen this film for 15 years, so I'd forgotten a lot of details and honed in on a lot of different things watching it now. It's still a striking, striking film, and it really is a down-the-rabbit-hole experience. There's some actually really quite explicit tips of the hat to Alice in Wonderland there, especially that checkered uh, floor Mm. and hallucinatory um, section mm. there. And it's distorted as well. Yeah, it's very distorted. distorted. That reminds me of a lot of other films from around that time where especially from uh, the same parts of the world as the cremator came from, which is to say communist Czechoslovakia. There was a lot of paranoia about bureaucracy, uh, about Orwellian nightmares and um, Kafkaesque scenarios, and all of that feeds into this film in such a big way as well. And it's indeed part of what's called Frankenheimer's unofficial uh, pa- paranoia, paranoia trilogy, trilogy yeah, with, with the, the Manchurian yeah. candidate in seven days in May. Yeah, so I was reminded a lot of uh, Czechoslovak films like The Cremator, uh, also uh, A Case for the Rookie Hangman, an an amazing Alice in Wonderland-esque paranoid bureaucratic thriller nightmare film. Um, But also Orson Welles' The Trial, Um, all of this, Mm. plus, of course, the whole business, um, the plastic surgery features very large in this film and the plastic surgery disaster genre increasingly becoming a a little Mm. sub-genre of horror, especially with the precedent not many years prior of Eyes Without a Face, that extraordinary French film from director Georges Franju. And even the mask is a bit like, the bandage is a bit like, the is it the face of another? The, yeah, um, mm. the Japanese the film. Japanese, from the, yeah. Again, mm. from that period. Mm. Yeah, Emma, you must just be fit to burst into want to talk about this. <laughs> no, I'm really enjoying listening to you guys talk about it. I, I, I simply adore this film. I think uh, it was my choice as the, one of the retro films and um, and Paul seemed interested to know why I liked it. I think it's... Not why you liked it, but why you love it. Why I love it. Yeah. First of all, it starts with a Saul Bass credit sequence, yes, which is does. just straight from... I think straight from the get-go, this film just captures you. You start with a, you start with a Saul Bass credit sequence and there's some expectation behind it. And the amazing thing about this sequence, and you, you could actually... We could talk about 20, 20 minutes on this sequence alone, if not more, but it just um, sets the tone so perfectly for the rest of the film. And it is such a, a nihilistic film. This, I think it's important to mention that this tanked, absolutely tanked the time at the box office and it wasn't expected to I guess I don't know what they expected from it but Rock Hudson was uh, in terms of his popularity miscast but I think it's his 
his ultimate role. I think I've never seen him better. But everyone was used to seeing him as, you know, this romantic comedy role with Doris Day playing the, you know, the swinging bachelor kind of thing. And um, in this film, he has to really, he has to mimic John Randolph's performance. He comes in as the secondary character. So he plays off John Randolph's. I don't know what the sequence was of shooting, but he definitely... He isn't allowed to just create the character himself. He has to create... He has to be Arthur Hamilton, who is um, the pre-Tony Wilson. Um, so I love these films that play out in the way of what they were taken at the time and then what they mean to us now. Um, because that film was... This is really... This is like the most cataclysmic buttressing of um, conservative American culture coming up against the counterculture I think I've seen in cinema. And that was what was so uncomfortable to people at the time. Mm. Um, I think it's still a tricky film. Like, it'd still be a tricky it's film pretty to bleak. sell. Yeah, yeah. I've sat with people and watched it and they go, oh, that's bleak. Yeah. <laughs> There's also some interesting parallels. I remember reading something about Rock Hudson and his own life and having to get extensive surgery and get teeth fixed and and all sorts of things to make him into there's, Rock Hudson. There's a fantastic thing that everyone can look up. It's just sitting on YouTube. It's a four-minute, like, um, production piece uh, on Seconds. If I guess if you look up Seconds, Rock Hudson, and Rock Hudson actually narrates it and um, it shows some shooting from behind the scene, but he talks through in this rather sombre way, talks about his role in appearing in this film. And the very interesting thing is he refers to Paramount the whole way through it as the company. <laughs> so it's... And this is what this film plays out in such an interesting way because it is the, the, the meta in this film, mm. um, what Rock Hudson was at that time. You know, he was he was not himself. He couldn't be himself in Hollywood and he was one of the biggest Hollywood stars at the time. Also with uh, Frankenheimer, he was um, uh, very close friends with Kennedy, very close friends with the Kennedys. Yeah. In fact, I think he was... Um, rumoured to have driven Bobby Kennedy to the hotel at the time when he actually got assassinated. Oh, wow. So this sort of thing plays into that American paranoia. It was America changing. Mm. Amer- and and I think this film just encapsulates it so beautifully. Beautiful. I, th- I think it must also have drawn some inspiration from Chris Marker's seminal La Jetée. Yes, in a, I can in a see big, that big too. Way, even yep. though that, that film is a, a film with scarcely a moving image in it. Uh, narratively and thematically uh, and, and in terms of just the ultimate bleakness of it all. Um, uh, La Jetée, for folks out there who don't know it terribly well, they might better know uh, the Terry Gilliam reimagining of... How many monkeys was it? Twelve. 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 Yeah, it was twelve. <laughs> there were 12. Also, to bring yeah. that full circle, I just kept thinking, do you think Terry Gilliam's a fan of this film? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. the uh, do you know who is? And it just looks know, like a Terry Gilliam I, film. I can tell you who is. Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Massive massive fan of Yeah, I could film. see that too. Mm. Man does love himself a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed this film a lot. I just felt there was... I felt Arthur quite passive, quite a passive protagonist. And the fact that he never really chooses the thing and he's sort of shoved towards it almost by fate um, found it hard to find a way in. And there's a lot of... It's interesting. I think Rock Hudson, I think it is definitely his greatest performance. I still can't help thinking that another actor might have taken it somewhere a little higher but um yeah i I found it 
difficult to connect to, I guess. But it is, as you've, you two have so beautifully described, it is endlessly interesting. And it is such, a, um, such an innovative film. It is completely worth checking out. So if you want to check out Seconds, it is available to rent on iTunes, Google Play, and uh, YouTube Rentals. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So, Gloria Bell is uh, director Sebastian Lelio's remake of his 2013 film, Gloria, uh, which uh, got a little notice a few years ago, particularly for the brilliant performance from its lead actor, Paulina Garcia, in the title role. So, Gloria is uh, about... In in the remake here, she's played by Julianne Moore. She's about uh, 12 years post-divorce. and uh, she's uh, children are all grown up, and one is played by Michael Sarah. And uh, she's, you know, she heads out to disco. She loves to dance. She's trying to meet somebody. She's a little lonely, um, and ends up running into a, a, a gentleman played by John Turturro, guy named Arnold. He seems nice, you know. He seems like he, you know, he's very, but he's a little guarded about his personal life. He's got two daughters, and he's reluctant to you know share his two lives essentially he's not he's afraid to tell the daughters about gloria and you know doesn't want to involve gloria in his family which you know starts sending off little alarm bells but it isn't necessarily what you think it's going to be uh so we follow gloria as she's going through all this and um and trying to you know trying to stay in touch with her kids and and it's 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 a real character study essentially um emma Mm. What did you think of Gloria Bell? That was the most... I was waiting for a pun. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm very... The writers went on strike this week. Um, they've all had to fire their agents. Oh, I thought it was your big, you know, grand homecoming. Ne- but anyway, next, w- next, next week. week next right, week. I'll next week we'll throw week. the fastballs. <laughs> I, I really I really love this film. Um, I think I mentioned to you guys in the break just before this, I think I'm having a little bit of a love affair with Sebastian Lelio at the moment and what he's um, doing in cinema... He just has this um, wonderful, sensitive touch, and what I in, uh, what I enjoy is the fact also that he is a man writing, and he, this is also uh, a film that was written by him and another man, and it's all about women, and uh, a really, I think, beautifully apt film about women and I think this is a really important thing this is artists prerogative to be able to walk in shoes that are not their own and this is where we can make a difference as artists Um, I think one of the most dangerous things that we're taught uh, creatively is to uh, write what you know no write what you don't know this is where you can change the world and create links between things and open people's eyes and And there's um, a lot of talk these days about oh you haven't lived that experience therefore you shouldn't write that. It's such a dangerous thing. It's a creativity killer. It's such a dangerous thing. And um, and obviously, you know, he loves, you know, making films about women. And um, and Gloria is not a a young woman. She is a middle-aged woman. So I I like to call... I feel that this film, we see a lot of of coming-of-age films and we just... call them that this is like a coming out of age film it's not that she's at the end of her life but she's there the, a lot of the characters not just her are, are coming out of what they felt was established as their adult life and needing to redefine themselves um and it's done with a really lovely sense 
of humour, but it's um, also done with quite a bit of pathos as well. Mm. Um, it's an interesting thing to have a director want to remake their film. Um, I think of someone like Michael Haneke with Funny Games. Mm-hmm. He he did this. I, I actually was took it upon myself to watch Gloria with um, uh, Paulina Garcia mm-hmm. in the room. She th- that is a th- that is equally a wonderful film it's less la la land less la mm-hmm. and i think she feels more real than julianne moore but i still love julianne moore in the just a slightly hollywood versus mm-hmm. a chilean film um but um yeah it's still it does it isn't as an exact remake as something like funny games was uh it has rewritten a few little things but essentially the main crux of the story is there uh, Cerise, what did you uh, what did you think of this one? I, d- I didn't mind it, I, but um, I I had high hopes for a, a more moving experience. I, I found this a, a nice film, but I, I didn't get fully drawn into it. Maybe because there was actually that star power in it: uh, Julianne Moore, uh, John Turturro, even Michael Cera, and and a few other very familiar Hollywood character actors rounding out the cast, and that actually. I struggled to buy into it as a, a, a real a narrative universe. Mm. Um, whereas the film of his previously that really wowed me, A Fantastic Woman, um, was also enlivened by moments of magic realist whimsy, only that whimsy always carried a real pathos with it as well. So it wasn't whimsy for whimsy's sake, which can be very annoying. Um, uh, that was a, a very, very beautiful film, and uh, that was dealing with death and grief, though. It, well, it was, but there's there's quite a bit of grief in the mix here. That, but I never really felt it strongly, and there, there's there's a lot of grappling here with familial attachment and sense mm. of um, you know, how much, say, for for Gloria, a mother, how much to involve herself, almost impose herself upon her children's lives. It's super awkward. It's quite funny at the very mm. outset that, when she makes those phone calls. I mm. would like to make this very clear. Yeah. It was not that strong in the original version. Ah. So this plays out. She feels like so much more of a fawning, awkward mother um, in this version mm. of it, um, which I have a feeling, Cerise, that you would get more from the 2013 well, I wonder. I also wonder how much Julianne Moore brought to the role, not just in embodying this character but she's she's actually the executive producer of this film so i think she's i'm not quite sure what the backstory of this film's production is but i expect at some point she thought i'm going to give that director a call i'd really like an english language version of this i'd like to be gloria i Mm -hmm. am gloria and um and also to so you were saying one of you that the spanish version actually has the song gloria sung in spanish yes yes and were the songwriters originally spanish do you I know which came first? I don't. I don't know. It's interesting because they play a lot in this film on the idea of uh, disco or MOR songs from a certain age, which Gloria likes to sing in her car or dance to at nightclubs. Really awkward, interesting nightclubs. Um, and the 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 American version, this version, Gloria Bell that we're talking about tonight, has songs that I think 
most people here who are listening to this in Australia, shall we say, maybe not on the podcast, will um, recognise those those songs, but they're much more Hispanic in yeah. the, the Chilean version. So it's obviously playing out culturally. Yeah, yeah I'm really intrigued with that. I, I could only imagine the original version would have been a lot more... Oh, Hispanic. Uh, Pablo Lorraine, though, nonetheless, yes. is associated with this remake as well. And he's an interesting character. He's a ch- another Chilean director who has moved into Hollywood territory too. And with, say, an actor like Gael Garcia Bernal, who's worked with him in, I think, uh, Spanish-language films and English-language films, he must have by now... I don't know, because he's not in Jackie. He's not in Jackie. No, no as far as I know, Jackie's his only English-language yeah. film. He was in the... Neruda. Neruda. In. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so Lorraine is... Moving across those those nations as well in an interesting way, his career has gone transnational, and this transnationalism I think is really interesting. But I somehow wanted to like this film more than I wound up. I didn't. I didn't with Gloria Bell, but with Gloria, actually, at the end, I cried. Yeah, moment. It just it really touched me, and that comes to my main problem with Gloria Bell. I think it's very much smacks of, and I look. I I think Julianne Moore. Everyone knows National Treasure. Great actress. Hmm. Brilliant. I think she's very much gone, as you said, I want to play that. And I don't think she's suited to the role. It's like Paulina Garcia's performance is so wonderful and so heartbreaking and so and she gets all of those grace notes of loneliness and, like, yeah, like the fawning mother aspect you were kind of talking about, Emma. Mm. Um, and But there's also a wryness to her performance and it's kind of... So she's kind of seen it all before and is kind of world-weary but also really hopeful and really kind of... And has that loneliness all in Paulina Garcia's performance. And her face has more... Do you notice that she, she looks like a real person? Yeah. And this is the thing. Julianne Moore looks like a movie star. Like yeah. everything about her is like you are a Hollywood movie star. You have the figure of a Hollywood movie star. You have the face of a Hollywood movie star. This would never be your life. Mm. And Julianne Moore is almost a good enough actress. She almost makes me believe in the film's final moments that she is that person. Almost, Mm. but not quite. I think John Turturro is much more successful at this, even though he's still got a little of that, you know, great New York Well, the other guy's much older. Mm. And I think that the actual the Chilean sex scenes were much more full on for and yeah. older characters as well, yeah. which is something that I don't know in Western cinema we're not very comfortable with. And that's the thing. And even when you get Julianne Moore, who is someone who is you know I believe she's in her late fifties, like looks still has the look and body of someone in her thirties. And it's just it's it's just distancing. I think the film is beautifully shot. I think Natasha Breyer does a hell of a job. Um, I think it's well, like, yeah, I think it's. Well, directed, but it is essentially a virtually a shot-for-shot shot remake of, of Gloria and with Hollywood trappings. And, again, it's that thing I wonder how necessary it is. It does feel like a very star-driven thing and, you know, bless Lelio for getting the, getting the gig and creating, you know, widening his international uh, profile even though he had disobedience last year with Rachel's mm. Vice and McAdams. Yeah, I just I just kind of got to the end of this, like, this did not have the punch. And, in fact, I started thinking of Paulina Garcia's performance and it started making me quite emotional and mm. thinking of how beautiful she was in the role. And See, I watched it the opposite way around. Yeah, and but you so had the same reaction, though. You mm. cried at Paulina Garcia's yes. performance and not at, at mm-hmm. Julianne Moore's. Exactly. And that's the thing. It just It's just a little too much movie star gloss here and it just... And it just feels a bit unnecessary, unless it's Michael Haneke. I don't know how wild I am about people doing shot-for-shot remakes of their own It's movies. not shot-for-shot, though, Paul. Seriously. You, cause it I feels watched so it, much. Like, I even down to the close. weird part. I oh, know. Yeah, I have heard yeah. it's not 
direct. Mm, but, mm, mm. but you know, like the, the weird uh, adventure park that the boyfriend owns with the paintball guns and the... The cat? Bungee, yeah, and the, the cat. The hairless yeah, cat. like all of it is so incredibly similar. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I just kind of was left... I had a good time, but I was like, yeah, okay, I'd rather You can send people to the original. original film. Absolutely. It's, it's readily available on streaming services, just mm. like Seconds. <laughs> We're sending everyone back to streaming at the moment. This but, is yeah. the death of cinema. Here we are, presiding <laughs> over the death of the very medium that we so love. Get on or get out of the way. Uh, <laughs> hey. Glor- that was Gloria Bell, and that is screening in all good independent cinemas. Three. <laughs> Welcome back to Plato's Cave. You're here with Paul Anthony Nelson, Emma Westwood, and Cerise Howard. Um, so our third film for this evening is an Australian film called Celeste. Now, this is the second film from uh, Australian director Ben Hackworth. It stars Rada Mitchell as Celeste, once Australia's most beloved opera singer. She's uh, gone into seclusion, kind of hasn't sung in years, has thrown it all away to follow the man she loved to a crumbling property deep in the rainforests of tropical North Queensland. Ten years after this man's tragic death, Celeste is ready to make one final return to the stage, but her stepson, Jack, still haunted by the past, arrives at her behest amidst the preparations for the performance and finds Celeste is as he remembered, beautiful, intoxicating, dangerous, a little scatty. (laughs) Uh, When Celeste asks Jack for an impossible favour, the secrets that drove them apart explode back into rhapsodic life. Cerise. Well, did Celeste <laughs> make your heart sore or did it make you lament at the present of Australian film? Oh. Actually, just before, I'll just come back to something you said in your intro. Uh, he has made more films, uh, some, some shorts before Lilia. features. Mm. But just in a weird Plato's Cave link, uh, there was a short film he made which had Tara Judah in the cast some this years ago. Is, oh, this is did? Ben Hackworth we're yes. talking about? Yes, director ah. Ben Hackworth. Half-sister, I believe it was called. I know that because I read Adrian Martin's article in Screen Hub um, writing a quite celebratory piece on Hackworth as an auteur. Mm. Um, yeah, so that raised an eyebrow. Yeah. I now wish to see that myself because I have not seen Tara on screen. Mm, Tara Judah was the, one of the original co-hosts one, of Plato's yeah. Cave. One of the OG cavers. Um, she was also in a little film OG, OJ. OG. <laughs> original gangster. She said OJ. OJ. <laughs> Don't squeeze the <laughs> juice, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the juice is loose. Um, she was all, Tara was also in a film called Gross Misconduct mm. with Jimmy Smith and Greta Skarky. What? Uh, yeah. Was she? Yep. However, she is not in Ben Hackworth's Celeste, which is just to tighten the focus a little again. So this this is a peculiar, dreamy film set in a part of Australia we don't actually see on screen all that often, right up in the tropics, far north Queensland, in a really extraordinary um, semi-artificial environment with an interesting story. Apparently it's a heritage park, this Paranella Park. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. Either of you ever? No. I'd never heard of it and I thought, wow. Yeah. And it's quite stunning to look it at. It is, is stunning. It's I'm wondering stunning. what came first, Paranella Park or the script? Well, the, the, these are questions yeah. because mm. it is very location specific, even referring to the location by name. So there's mm. no mm-hmm. s- suggestion Paranella Park plays somewhere. They look like uh, ruins. They do look like ruins and they look 
like ruins from a whole other culture um, from far, far away, some sort of mm. European or even South American too. That's just, yeah, all sorts of stuff in that mix there. Um, this is a curious, dreamy film. All of the acting is, has a certain mannered quality to it. Uh, it's not a film that I bought into expecting any, uh, in, in any sort of veristic sense. I didn't feel I was inhabiting... Uh, uh, a, a, a narrative universe that was meant to convince me of its reality. It was it had more a dreamy quality to it throughout. There's not a lot of drama, in fact, really. I mean, there are dramatic things, or things that in another film would seem dramatic, but here they just had a pretty light quality to them, which also meant that I didn't feel terribly affected by the film other than feeling a little groggy afterwards actually a little lightheaded because it did did cast a little bit of a spell on me perhaps partly because that scenery is so gorgeous uh that this park um but it also did remind me of some other films mm-hmm. uh in particular the the really extraordinary work by the thai director apachat pong we razatakal i do know if you know his films his, Uncle that, Boon Me. Yes, Uncle Boon Me, who, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, I thought Cerise was yeah. swearing at us then. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Upper Chat Pong, we rather tackle. I'm coming, yeah. He asked if you could call him Joe. <laughs> he does. For good actually. reason, that's, that's true. actually yeah. true. Yeah. But he is a, a truly extraordinary filmmaker. And I'm when I see this sort of environment on screen, I can't help but think of his films, which are truly spellbinding mm. and strange. This film has a strangeness about it, but in a way it's just not quite strange enough. Mm. There's a bit of an Australian Gothic tinge to it, but it doesn't... I, I never felt quite drawn into it, and the, its mysteries were never quite mysterious enough. There's a, a, some elliptical storytelling, which then comes with a resolution, and I wish it actually hadn't had something to explain away it all yeah i yes i agree i thought that it's it, um unfolded its narrative quite it, it quite well shall we say i was thinking oh how is this piecing together um but maybe it, it pieced together a little bit too nicely um, I think so. yeah i did enjoy the way that um there had there was this kind of I guess it's the way the tropics works too. It's kind of this feeling of because you, you had this white noise of cicadas and all of this in in the background and this idea of a kind of fragile wilderness and things and that, that kind of played out a bit in the narrative. Like, how is this going to tip? You know, mm. um, what is really wrong with Celeste? And we kind of can see something's wrong with Celeste right from the beginning. Um, but also the way that she was holed up in this um, in this Paranella Park, in the excuse me, <coughs> in the middle of nowhere, I thought that was really unusual. Uh, it kind of had this feeling of um, a Victorian era piece. I guess you can you know recollections of a picnic at Hanging Rock or something as well. But the way she walked around the the estate was reminded me of like those widows' walks in um, mm. Victorian houses where she was kind of confined and um, and she was a widow essentially in it. Mm. So and that's the only way she could look at the world. But it was also her start that was keeping her there and that seemed a very strange thing in itself that they would choose to have this performance in the middle of nowhere like who were these people coming to the performance mm. and um it, the whole that. the whole thing is very precious i sorry i found this to be a sleeping pill i just, just 
I was not engaged. Like 15 minutes in, I was like, I don't, I, I, this film is not giving me a reason to care about anybody. I don't know. I mean, Thomas Cockerell, I assume, is a 30-year-old man or is around that. But is, is his character meant to be 21, 22? Like he, he spends the entire movie acting like he a was, child. Yeah, he was in... Have you, did He's you in see Red in, Dog, True Blue. He's in the Errol Flynn yeah, biopic that came out recently. That terrible. In Like Flynn, that's yeah. a um, Russell Mulcahy film. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, yeah, anyway, a, yeah, let's and, just and, leave that. And it's, <laughs> and it's, I just, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for, uh, I, I want to stop my sex, uh, I, I want to stop my uh, step-parent slash step-child movies. Mm. I just, I, I like, and so much of Australian cinema is focused on, I want to sleep with, enter, enter a family member here. And it's just <laughs> like, and, and this thing just goes all over the whole film and just, it's like, I don't care. I don't care that you're a brittle character who wants to screw your stepson. I don't care that you've had this whole thing. Like, and it's just, and then when the twists start coming at the end, it's absurd. It's fairly soap opera melodrama given art house sheen and it's just it just didn't do anything for me it's look it's beautifully shot but most australian films are um <laughs> i'm sorry it's it's just yeah i i just couldn't not I, I i i lost patience with this film fairly early on um and didn't really get it back but <laughs> celeste is currently yeah. screening in all good independent cinemas Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hello, welcome back. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R with Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We discussed Seconds, the 1966 John Frankenheimer film, uh, and new releases Gloria Bell and Celeste. Gloria Bell and Celeste are currently screening in all good independent cinemas. Seconds is available to rent on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube rentals. Next week, The Cave will be digging into Top End Wedding, Three Faces, and as our retro title for next week, Stanley Kubrick's 1956 breakout film, The Film Noir, The Killing. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, Lisa Kovacevic for producing the show, and Carl Chapman for panelling. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.